Now last night we were looking at sexual morality in the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where we concluded with that passage verses 17 to 24 and the importance of walking the assigned walk in which you were called. The, the theme is that of contentment. Contentment with God's sovereign rule over our lives, how it governs the, the whole chapter that we have before us that God has, has called us where he wanted us and where he wants us is where we should be content to stay. And so we're told to remain as we are. In, in verse 8, you see, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. Or down in verse 11 again, but uh, if she does, she should remain unmarried. Or down in verse 24, uh, which is over the page for me here, so brothers in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain. Uh, in different words, not using the word remain, you'll see the same effect in verse 12, to the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. It's a, it doesn't use the word remain, but it's the same concept that you have. Similarly, in verse 17, the simple summary, the summary verse is found in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So wherever you were when you became Christian, they remain. Now, of course, that's impossible as an absolute. Uh, I was 13. I couldn't remain. It just continued to change. Life did before me. But the principle is there. However, the, you see, the advice is not absolute. It's just the default position. There are times and situations where change was called for. And so within this chapter, you remain as you are, but... So verse 8, the unmarried should remain single, but... Verse 9 gives an exception to it. Verse 10, the marriage should not separate, but then verse 11 gives an exception to it. Verse 12, those married to the unbelievers should remain, but then down in verse 15, you're told the exception to it. And in verse 21, the slave is not to worry about being a slave, or the bondservant's not worried about being a bondservant, but if he can gain his freedom, he should do so. So it's not absolute, you must stay exactly where you are. But it's the default position unless there's a reason to shift. The last word of last night's passage was verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Now that perspective continues in tonight's passage, the rest of chapter 7, but it does have some difficulties for us to navigate. The difficulties in the Bible are never in the Bible, they're always in our heads, but we've got heads that have been a bit twisted and screwed up and, and changed and we need to clarify some things that are before us here. Firstly, so you ready? A little bit of hard work. Here we go. Hope you didn't eat too big a meal. Just settle down. We are talking about sex, that should keep you alive and awake for a while. First meaning is the meaning of the word virgin. Now, that's fairly straightforward, you would think. For us, it means a woman who has not had sex. That's straightforward. However, in the New Testament, it refers to young, sexually inexperienced girl. Uh, but we expect young girls to be virgins. 
It's not like they're two different things, it's the same thing. A young girl, a virgin, it's referring to the same thing. In fact, some people would say Mary was a young girl rather than a virgin. But if you read the text, it's quite clear she has not had sex, so she's a virgin in both senses of the word. As the marriage age could be very young, uh, some would argue pretty well straight after puberty came marriage, the word can be translated as, as betrothed, if you've been betrothed as a child through family arrangements, or as a young girl, because that's what they by and large were. Uh, it's talking about a stage of life rather than their sexual inexperience or experience. Now, if you've got the NIV translation, it uses the word virgin throughout this section. Now concerning the virgin in verse 25. If you've got the ESV, it's using the word betrothed throughout this section. And if you've got the RSV, which most of you don't anymore, of course, it uses the word unmarried. Now concerning the unmarried. And I'm sure there'd be some people who'd want to write now concerning the single. But the Greek word is virgin. That's what the word is. Uh, verse 34 speaks of the unmarried woman and the virgin. The ESV puts it as or the virgin. And it sounds like it's meaning the same thing. But I'm sure it's meaning something different. The unmarried woman is the one we met back in verse 8. It is the woman of this world. She may be divorced, she may have lived with lots of men, she may be the woman of Samaria. It's the woman of, of, of adulthood and who is unmarried. The virgin is the young girl, sexually inexperienced, not yet married, or not yet having entered into those kinds of relationships. So that's the word that runs throughout this passage. Every time you see the word betrothed in your ESV, it actually is the word virgin. And it changes the way you read the passage when you, you, you remember that word. This leads to the second difficulty, that of who is being addressed. Is it the father of the virgin, or is it the bridegroom to whom she's been betrothed? But who is being referred to, for example, in verses 36 to 38? If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his virgin, if his passions are strong, if she's getting along in years, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. Now, see, the ESV has put in the word betrothed, and the NIV has put in he is engaged to. But he is engaged to is not there in the Greek, and the word betrothed is virgin, so the ESV is wrong about betrothed and the NIV is wrong about virgin, uh, wrong about being engaged. Uh, and if she's getting along in years, is how the NIV said it back in 84, but in its newest version, it goes, if his passions are strong. It sounds very different, doesn't it? And I'll come back to that in a moment. And, but my question for you at this moment is, is this referring to the daughter or is it referring to the betrothed woman. Who is the virgin? Who's the man that's being spoken of here? Is it the father or is it the husband, the bridegroom? It's not quite clear for us in that regard. Now remember betrothal is a stricter form of relationship than engagement. We shouldn't break our engagement to marry but we can and people are very sympathetic when we do. 
But a betrothal was a formal legal undertaking, often taken by your parents in arranged marriages, that could not be broken without legal consequences, without what we would call divorce. In fact, if you remember back in uh, Matthew chapter 1, how when Mary is found with child, Joseph wishes to divorce her secret. But you say, well, they're not married. How can they be divorced? Well, because they're betrothed. And to actually make this break is not just a to cancel the wedding reception, it's to actually deny the contract that has been established. Either of these translations, NIV, ESV, they run into difficulties, say in verse 37 and 38, where it talks about, and he's determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Well, the NIV has it as, who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin. This man does the right thing, so then he who marries the virgin does right, and he who does not marry her does better. Now, notice the ESV is correct in putting in the word his. It's his betrothed. The NIV doesn't like the idea that a virgin is owned by a man. And so you can't have the mind to marry his virgin, so they put it as the virgin. But the Greek has his. But the NIV is right, it's virgin, not betrothed. <laughs> so, which translation do I use for you? I'll use the PDJ version. <laughs> and has determined in his heart to keep his own virgin, he will do well. So then he who marries his own virgin does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. That's what the Greek is actually saying. Our translators are trying to help us with this understanding, and that's why I call it a demarcation dispute. They should just translate it and let me, the Bible teacher, teach it, rather than them doing the Bible teaching and getting me to do the translation. <laughs> it's, it's kind of back to front in the situation we're in at the moment. It was a lot easier when you had the King James Version of the Bible. That was a lot simpler. Um, however, we've lost that. I'm assuming throughout the passage that it is to the bridegroom, not the father, that it's being addressed. But I want to make sure that you understand there is a very sensible alternative, that is, it's being addressed to the father of the virgin, not to the... and it could mean that. I don't think it does, but it could. But it's talking about his own virgin, that is, the one to whom he has been betrothed and she has been betrothed to him. And so it's not discussing marrying somebody else's virgin, but marrying your own virgin. It's still not how we would talk about it, is it? But that leads me to another problem in a moment. Before that, there's a third problem in the meaning of this passage. That is the present distress that you have in verse 26. You can see the reference there. I think that in the view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. But it actually lies behind the whole paragraph, verses 25 to 31, as well as to the whole passage, actually, that we're looking at tonight. It, it could refer to some particular problem in Corinth at that time. Indeed, we know there were difficulties at Corinth at that time. Some are sick and some have died in 1 Corinthians 11. And there's a challenge to stand firm like men in uh, chapter 16. But it's part of a larger issue of the end of the world. For look down to verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And verse 31. 
for the present form of this world is passing away. Now these are not two different things, the present distress and the end of the world and the form of this world. That is, we expect that the world is coming to an end. We are in the last days and part of the last days will be suffering and persecution. And that suffering and persecution is not uniformly distributed across time and across place, but it is very clear in some places at some times. And it could have been clear in Corinth at this moment in time. There could have been a particular present distress in Corinth, which was part of the end of the world's distress. You and I have the enormous privilege of living in Australia. It is a great privilege, isn't it? How would you like to be a Syrian Christian? Watching your villages being blown up, having your neighbours plundering your goods, putting the letter N on your, on your doorstep, meaning you're a Nazarene and therefore you don't have any rights to property, etc. How would you like being amongst the Yazidis as they're being massacred? How would you like to be, you know, there's lots of places in this world where the end of the world is seen in the present distress that is happening. And how you live in the present distress may be different to how you're living in the comfort and quiet of where we are in Australia, where we're not really concerned with anything like that. I mean, our big concerns as to whether we use Netflix or Stan. <laughs> then, fourthly, there's a difficulty for some people over the question of commands versus judgment. Some people seem to have Paul to be going out of his sorry, no, let me put this right. Paul is going out of his way to differentiate the commands of the Lord and his own judgment on this issue. Look back to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. If it's just his judgments, that is just Paul's judgment, do we have to abide by them? Well, I want to say four things about that. One, firstly, on this issue, when he refers to the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, not God. He generally talks of God, meaning God the Father, and the Lord, meaning Jesus. That's his usual language, and I expect it here. That is, there are things he knows that Jesus said while he was on earth, and these are the commands of the Lord. And there are other things of which he knows nothing about Jesus speaking, and so he's giving his opinion. Notice, secondly, that Paul does more than just give opinions. Back in verse 17, he talks about, this is my rule in all the churches. He's quite, he does give commands. Thirdly, Paul is giving reasons for his commands. I think because of the present distress, this is what you should do. These are not permanent, never-to-be-varied commands, like you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not. they're permanent anytime, anywhere. These are connected directly into a time frame. But the decisions made on the basis of certain arguments that will change means that, well, the command, the decisions would change as the circumstance does, as the arguments do. Fourthly, Paul is considered as authoritative. Verse 25, But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. It's not just anybody who's speaking to you. And then the famous one in verse 40, 
Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Because he's writing to a very crazy, charismatic, confused, Pentecostal, semi-Christian church. And so he's saying, you think you've got the Spirit of God? Well, actually, I do. And you may be making these judgments on the basis of the spirits, but actually, I've got the Spirit of God. And so I'm sure you're supposed to follow his judgments. Okay, now for the general difficulty. They're my four little ones. Now the general difficulty. That is the connection between this text and us. It's made acute as I speak to you as a group of women, for the Bible is usually addressed to men. Um, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife. But it doesn't say you shall not covet your neighbour's husband. You go for it all you like. It's only we men who are not allowed to do the coveting of a spouse, you see. Well, generally we can infer the corresponding word to ourselves as women. And generally women are smart enough to do that. So when it's saying you're not to covet your neighbour's wife, you can understand, and your neighbour's husband. But this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is a little bit more difficult than that because it's about a man's virgin. Uh, how are you supposed to translate that back for your situation? And verses 25 to 28, it seems to be that you should follow the normal inference because having addressed the men in verse 27, he applies it to both men and women in verse 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, that is, if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. See, so in verse 28, he does flip it across the other side, so the woman has the same kind of requirements as the man. Yet, the way he speaks about his virgin in verse 36, it's a little hard to infer how it applies to you, my sisters. In the past, the word man applied to both men and women. I'm really sorry that we've lost this, by the way. Humanity and that dreadful word, humankind, I think it's an appalling gobbledygook word. Humanity is a much nicer one, uh, just as a speaker. But man is a very powerful word because it's, it's monosyllabic. Right? It's just, there are things you can do as a preacher with the word man that you can't do with humanity. It just doesn't have the same oomph that is taken there. What is man that you are mindful of him? You know? What is humanity that you're mindful of? It's not the same. It doesn't carry the same power to it as just as a, as a piece of language. And language does have style and character to it. Uh, and there are silly things that are said by people. Uh, for a while there, it was said you shouldn't say man and woman because that gives man the dominant position, being the first, you see. And so you should, out of egalitarianism, every now and then say woman and man. Because every time you do, it kind of it doesn't go right. Because the character of our language is man and woman. And you can see that when you move to being polite. Ladies and gentlemen. Which one comes first? It's the female. The positioning first is not a position of power. It's got to do with you have the short syllable first and the longer one second. Man, woman, ladies, gentlemen. 
It's, it's got to do with the rhythm of the language. It's not got to do with power structures. That's, that's, just, that's a nonsense reading that is taking place. And so the word man used to be a great word, which we've lost. So God created man, male and female he created them. Huh? Both male and female are man. That is, we're not animal, we're man. We belong to the human race, which is why we're all racists because we don't want to intermingle the human race with the animal races. Right? So we've, we've lost our language in all kinds of ways. In part, it's because of this grammatical gender, using man for humanity, that you could apply the word man to both men and women. But in part, it's because women, a woman is the glory of man, made from him and created for him as Paul is going to go and argue in chapter 11 in a few chapters' time. So man is the one responsible to God for himself and for his family. It's the family of man. It's never called the sin of Eve. It's always called the sin of Adam. She ate the fruit first, but he is the first to sin. Because he is the responsible one. It's Adam and it's in Adam that we sin. We don't sin in Eve, we sin in Adam. Generally the feminists don't mind us sinning in Adam. Anything negative about men's allowed. It's the positives that are not allowed. We are in Adam, we are not in Eve, even though Eve is the mother of us all. But what about those passages that really are addressed to men as men, and not simply man as a human, like 1 Timothy 2.8 about prayer? And what of marriage practices that are different to our patterns, either in the Christian community or in society's uh, patterns? The simple answer for most Bible readers to, uh, that they follow today is to translate or to understand the Bible in today's cultural practices. NIV, bringing in the word engaged in verse 36. It's just not there. But it's an attempt to make us understand what is there. So they just put it into our language, our culture, our ideas. But in the process, change the meaning. Others try to help us to understand what the Bible's culture is about, and it's different to ours, by translating and understanding the ancient world. So the ESV keeps using the word betrothed to help us understand that it's different. But the word is virgin. And they should have stuck with it. I'd argue that behind the cultures, modern or ancient, and the are the doctrines of creation and redemption. And if we're to think Christianly, we must take ourselves back to the theology of creation and redemption. We've got to know our genesis. We've got to know our cross and resurrection. So, for example, the Bible talks of marrying and being given in marriage. For until very, very recently, the bride was always given in marriage. Uh, in the wedding service that, uh, by which Helen and I got married, the question was asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The question was never, who gives this man to be married to this woman? It was only because the man married the woman and the woman was given in marriage. In fact, in that prayer book, um, the groom wed the wife, the bride, 
but the bride didn't wed the groom. Uh, the language was, was quite clear. Um, uh, with my body I thee worship, with all my worldly goods I thee in bestow. The woman didn't say that to the man. So I gave Helen all my worldly goods, which at that stage, as a theological student, weren't very much. It was a motor scooter and a couple of hundred dollars. But she got the lot. I don't know what she's done with the motor scooter, but uh, she got all my... But she didn't give me a penny. Um, and that's why I don't wear a wedding ring. Because it was in that part of the service that you gave the ring. And the man gave the woman the ring, but the woman didn't give the man the ring. Because the man was marrying the woman, and the woman was given in marriage. That is how the prayer book of the 16th century, which was still in use as late as 1969, uh, was written and how people got married. Now, this reflects, you see, it's a, it's, suddenly you think, well, hang on, that culture's that culture, we've moved on. Well, we may have moved on, but have we moved forwards or backwards? Just to say you've moved, when people call themselves progressives, I always hear the word regressives. Right? That that we've changed is what we've changed, but have we changed for better or for worse? You see, what that pattern of marriage reflected is a whole range of good things. Marriage is about having children. That's not a modern concept anymore. Mothers need protection and provision and security. Mothers are more important to maintain the population than fathers. You can kill off a lot of men and still keep the population going. You kill off a lot of women, you don't have a population. Mothers are much more important than fathers. Through the woman's son's birth comes our salvation. Men are to take responsibility for family life. Oh, that more Australian men understood that. What a blessing it would be to us. And even today, you see, we still romantically look to the man to propose to the woman. How many movies, how many pictures, how many YouTubes are about men proposing to women? And the power of the woman is to say no. Following Christ, a man is to lay down his life, to present his bride to Christ, pure and spotless, washed on the last day. So... There's a whole range of differences between husband and wife. They're not partners, they are spouses. Very different thing. Partners what I have at tennis. Partners what I have in business. A wife is what I have in life. A spouse. It's a very different thing. It's a different concept. And we Christians, we've got to be careful to stick closely to our Bibles and not just get slowly edged away into a different culture of what marriage is about. 1 Corinthians 7 is a great passage to confound modern practices. Back, as I said last night, in verse 4, the wife has authority over her husband's body. An extraordinary statement. It's not extraordinary at all. It's been there for 2,000 years. But it's extraordinary in the modern narrative of feminism, which says men actually can abuse their wives and nothing's wrong with that, whereas wife... It's just not what the Bible's teaching. It never has taught it. It's, it doesn't teach it. It's, and now in verse 36, the marriage of the virgin is the man's choice. And we think, oh, hang on, that's not right either. I suspect equal and different is the way to summarise what the Bible's talking about. Anyway, 
in general, we're not to embrace our culture or their culture. What we've got to do is turn their culture and our culture beyond that back to the theology of creation and redemption that lies behind the whole Bible's teaching. We've got to remember the backstory is the salvation of mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our story. I purposely didn't come to hear about feminism this afternoon um, to give you the freedoms. I've, I loved being with you, but uh, I've loved not being with you for all the meetings. In fact, for any of them other than the ones I'm speaking at, they're brilliant, actually. It's a wonderful place to be. Every session I go to, I, I, I agree with the speaker. Um, one of the great problems, I think, you see, is modern feminism isn't Christian. And so they're they see the symptoms of women's oppression, but they have the wrong diagnosis. The right diagnosis is sin. Their diagnosis is power. Power is not the problem. Sin is the problem. But that's not part of the agenda, you see. Power will never be the problem because there's nothing wrong with power. That, that's not an evil. Power does not corrupt you. And absolute power does not corrupt you absolutely, otherwise God would be absolutely corrupted. It's not power, the problem is sin. It's the wrong diagnosis for the symptoms. However, you should have heard what was said this afternoon because it's much better than what I just said. Now, let's turn then to look at verses 25 to 40 in the light of us trying to see what the Bible is saying may not answer the questions we want answered. Well, we'll have Q&A, but may not answer. But let's see what it is saying on this whole subject of the virgins and the widows. The whole passage is about living in the light of eternity. This is the basis of our contentment with whatever circumstances of life in which we find ourselves. This is the basis of our contentment when worldly people would be disappointed with our decisions and our actions. See, we know the form of this world is passing away, verse 31, and we know that the appointed time has grown very short, verse 29, and we know that we want not earthly goals and aspirations, but we want to please our Lord, in verses 32 to 35. That makes us completely different to the world. So we don't listen to Hollywood as to how to live, that would be a stupid place to listen. We don't listen to the Sydney Morning Herald or to their ABC. We listen to what God has to say because we're put in the right context of eternity. Pick it up, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. We are to live differently to the world. For as citizens of the world, there's nothing else we've got except this world. And so they love the form of this world and make all their decisions on the basis of what is here. They have no sense of the time. Life is always like this for them, so let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
They have nobody else to please but themselves, and possibly the other, but they're not actually living to please their Lord. And so they live for their spouse until they can't stand their spouse anymore. But we live in the light of eternity. For us it's more than a word to put up in lights on the millennium in the, you know, on the harbour bridge at the New Year's Eve. For us, it's a word to write on our hearts and on our minds, on our motivations and on our lifestyles. See, Mr Stace heard a sermon. A sermon preached out at a Baptist church in the inner city, wishing to see eternity written across the whole of our city. Mr Stace had been an alcoholic and a minor criminal. He'd been at the war, but he'd been in and out of trouble with the police ever since. He was a poor man and living a dreadful life. When he was wonderfully converted through the ministry down at St Barnabas Broadway under a great preacher called Mr Hammond. For once, he didn't do what alcoholics do. He didn't do a geographical, <laughs> you see. He was changed. He was changed from the inside out. And so, a couple of years later, when he heard that sermon at the Baptist Church on eternity, he heard that we've got to have eternity blazoned across our city. So he got a piece of chalk and he did it for the next 30 years, 500,000 times. He did it. And all over Sydney, people kept on saying, what's this eternity about? What's eternity about? Why, who is this man that's writing it? The message was really important. But sadly, the unbelievers were more entranced by the method and the man than they were by his message. Who is this man? Why is he doing it? Where, wh how does he do it? He got into all kinds of places. There's only one or two occasion places left where the original is. One of them is inside the bell of the, of the post office, the general post office. How did he get up in the bell tower? How did he get inside the bell? How did he write it? No one knows. But they're all interested in how he did that. But they're not interested in eternity. They have missed the point. For only those who are born again by the Spirit of God, who live their lives in the light of eternity, the rest live just for now. But if you live in the light of eternity, then you'll suddenly discover what matters matter and what matters don't matter. Because your whole perspective is different. So, here are some of the things that don't matter. What does not matter? One, being single or married doesn't matter. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. I mean, if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. But from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. In the light of eternity, it doesn't matter whether you are married or not. You're not more of a person if you are. You're not less of a Christian if, you're, if you are or if you're not. It is a complete irrelevant. Your standing in Christ Jesus, your standing in our fellowship with each other, has got nothing to do with whether you are married or not. Within our society, it clearly does matter. It's a significant matter. But it's not within Christ. 
Secondly, mourning or rejoicing doesn't matter. Verse 30, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. The world lives for happiness, you see. There's no other way to describe the good life than being happy. There's no other morality for the utilitarians than the promotion of happiness. But whether I'm happy or not is not the essence of my life. I may be going through miserable times. Sometimes you do. I may be going through exhilarating times. I've heard other people have. <laughs> but it's an irrelevance. It doesn't matter. We're not to live for happiness. Uh, if you're a masochist, you don't have to live for misery either. It doesn't matter what you're living for like that. We're not to live for happiness. We live for eternity. And so what we seek to do is to please our Lord. We seek to do that which is right, whether or not it promotes our own happiness. Living in the light of eternity changes your focus on everything. Thirdly, Owning or not owning things doesn't matter. Verse 30, those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. See, what we own, where we live, what car we drive, how fashionable our clothes are, uh, the places we go, the tourist resorts we've been to, are all so important to the world. This is the good life. This is the good weekend. You put out a magazine, the good weekend, what's it going to be about? What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you go. But these are all irrelevant things for those who live in the light of eternity. They're not wrong, as if owning something is wrong. Because that would actually make them more important than they are. They're <laughs> just unimportant. So you own a nice car, good for you. So you own an old claptrap? I hope you get home. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what you're driving or the clothes that you wear. Or uh, We went to a uh, complicated party the other week. I won't explain. It was a complicated where Helen and I were the only people basically we knew each other and the host and the hostess and that was it. And there were about 50 other people there. We didn't know any of them. I tried to go around talking to them, find out about their lives. It was really depressing. It was all about their trips to here or there, which place they'd gone to, which place they had got to, the photos they had of this place and that place. And I thought, well, what does it matter? You know, if you want a really good photo of the Taj Mahal, go to Google. <laughs> it'll be better than the one that you take. It'll be in focus. <laughs> and it'll be better than the one that I take because it won't have my thumb in the corner of it. <laughs> you know, so you've been there. So... How does that enrich your experience? How does that help India? We don't live the way the world lives because these things don't matter. Philosophical materialism, the belief that there's nothing else in the universe but material existence, always leads to economic materialism where people live to get more and more and more newer, better, bigger, brighter possessions. And that, of course, is soul-destroying. And even... The economic materialists know it's soul-destroying. But if you're a philosophical materialist, there is nothing else in life. But if you know eternity, there's everything else in life. So, in living in the life of eternity, you'll know, you'll get to know what doesn't matter, but you'll also, point five I'm up to, know what does matter.
It matters that we're not worried about this world and the things of this world, verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I'd spare you that. It matters that we're not being divided in our focus and in conflict because of it. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man, well, he's anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. It matters that we're worried about the kingdom as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, these important matters, the kingdom of God and righteousness, you see reflected here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For it matters that those who marry have not sinned. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Sinning matters to us. It matters that we are pleasing the Lord. Verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That now matters to us. For it matters to us that we are holy, verse 34. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. For it matters that we're devoted to the Lord. What matters for people living in the light of eternity? That we are devoted to living for him, for he who is the Lord of this age and of the age to come. You can do it if you're married, you can do it if you're single. You can do it if you're living in Sydney, you can do it if you're living in Brisbane. You can do it in any part and circumstance of life. But the things that matter, matter. So what do you do? The consistent command and advice of 1 Corinthians 7 is remain where you are. Don't do a geographical. Most of the things that people want to change are matters that don't matter and really will help them do any better with the matters that really do matter. If you live in Sydney or Brisbane, if you live in a good suburb or a bad suburb, it doesn't matter. If you're ministering in the city or you're ministering in the suburbs, it doesn't matter. If you're in industry or in retail, it doesn't matter. Christians need to learn the contentment that comes with God's sovereignty. Christians need to learn the importance and unimportance that comes from living for eternity. Christians need to be reassured to remain as you are, for there's nothing to be gained by changing your circumstances. For the single to envy the married, and for the married to envy the single, is the work of Satan. Be content with however God is sovereignly organising your life. So on to the subject that is being discussed here in 1 Corinthians 7, what about the virgins? What should a man do if he's betrothed to one? Verse 27, Paul's judgment is that in the light of eternity, if you're betrothed, if you're uh, ma married, then don't seek release. I don't know what he means there. He says, if you're bound, bound in marriage, bound by betrothal, if you're bound, then don't seek to be released. Don't seek to be free. And if you're not betrothed, if you're not married, then don't seek to be married. Because it's better to be spared worldly anxieties that come with marriage. Because that's how we live in all areas of life. 
as though, as though, as though. I, I watched one of you tonight. It was really lovely as you took hold of somebody's baby and tried to eat one-handedly. It was very clever. Uh, you know, the, the adaptability. I was really it was spectacular, my sister. I really watched it. And it was also very difficult. And it was not so easy to get the food in your mouth that you wanted to at the time. Because you've got to unwriggling little baby. See, married people have difficulties that single people don't have. That's just, that's just life, isn't it? It's not, it's not better or worse. It's not sin. It's just, there's realities that when you take on marriage, you take on children, because marriage is about having children. And when you take on marriage and when you take on children, you take on a whole set of anxieties and worries and, and distractions that come upon you in life. And that's just, that's what he's saying. So what about the widows? Well, wives are bound to remain as they are while they're married. But uh, uh, but once widowed, then you have a freedom. A freedom to marry, or not to marry. A freedom to marry, but only in the Lord. I suspect it's saying that the widow has a freedom to marry that the virgin doesn't. I suspect because the virgins were betrothed, whereas the widows were free to choose. I suspect. But it doesn't matter about that culture of that time. For he's, what he's telling the widows is, they're better off to remain as they are. For much the same reasons as it's better off to remain unmarried if you're a, an unmarried person. It's in the same category. But notice it's not a command. It's only godly wisdom. It's not about right and wrong. It's only about the relatively better way to live. She'll be happier. That is, blessed to live this way in this world. But that's not always the case. You've got to put this in remembrance of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, where he says the younger widow should marry. Just as he's saying the widows, who are generally older, it's better for them if they don't. He's saying for the younger women whose still sexual drive and sexual awakening has been aroused, etc., and still full of the energies of life to do things, they get themselves into great trouble and should remarry. That is, the judgments that are here are not absolutes. They're not written as absolutes and mustn't be turned by us into absolutes. There are times and situations where any of them could be different. It's godly wisdom that we're dealing with in this literature. So if you do marry, you've not sinned, verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned, and if a betrothed will marry, she's not sinned. And if you think that you are not behaving properly towards your betrothed by remaining single, well, it's better to marry, he says in verses 36 to 38. But what does it mean, not behaving properly towards your betrothed? Let's look again at the NIV and compare it with the ESV because they're two very different translations. Either is possible illustrations of not behaving properly. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It's no sin. Well, that's very understandable for modern 21st century people. But back in 1984, the NIV wrote, if anyone thinks that he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and 
if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he's not sinning, they should get married. That sounds politically incorrect <laughs> to say that today, doesn't it? Now it's a long story how the Greek can be read in these two ways that look so completely different. But actually, uh, from the point of just sheer technical translation, either of them is possible. They're both right. So which one do you choose? Well, part of the problem is when they're both true, how do you choose? Uh, either would not be behaving properly towards the betrothed, either is right, they're not sinning to marry, it would be only right to behave properly, but which one is more likely? I actually think the NIV is more likely. Uh, that is, you've been betrothed to this woman and she's reaching the end of the stage when she's going to be able to have children. And she can't marry anyone else because she's betrothed to you and by you staying single you're robbing her of the great joy of having children. And so I think there's a very strong argument that you could put for the NIV, the old NIV being the right one. It just sounds kind of crass and crude. But then one of the great problems of our society is we're not taking biology seriously. And so we're trying to get our young women to get multiple degrees and great careers and then somewhere along the line to marry and have children at the age of 50. And it just is not biologically actually tenable. It's crazy. Our world has gone nuts over careerism and really are damaging young women very seriously, I believe, in this regard. Uh, the British Medical Association put out warnings a few years ago that GPs were to encourage women to have babies earlier. Um, and just for physiological reasons, it's right. And so I, I think, again, you see the Bible is reflecting reality in a way that our culture doesn't. Our culture is denying reality, not facing up to what the world is as it is. And so although when you first read it, you kind of balk because it doesn't sound kind of polite somehow, she's getting along in years. And actually, that's a kindness, isn't it? That he's marrying for her benefit, not for his. I actually prefer it. I think it's right, but... It doesn't matter really in the end which translation or situation you find yourself in. The judgment not to marry is being told here to be it's not a permanent absolute command. It's better to set aside your situation for you should act properly towards your betrothed. And you're not sinning by marrying. But if you're going to not treat your, your betrothed properly, you are sinning. Well, sinning is what you've got to avoid. Marrying or not marrying is not the issue. Similarly, the widows, Paul's advice, it's better not to remarry. She's free to remarry whomever she wants, freer than the betrothed virgin, though she's to marry only in the Lord. For Paul's advice is that it's better not to, unless you're young, and then his advice is the exact opposite. And his advice is the advice of one who has the Spirit. So here we are. Here's an extraordinary chapter of the Bible, isn't it? Some parts have clear commands from the Lord. Some parts are non-negotiables, like providing for your spouse's sexual needs. Some parts, there are principles, 
but it's a little situational as to how you apply those principles. Yet in all, there is the principle of living in the light of eternity, so that you will remain content in whatever the circumstances of life God has called you. Were you in the situations of life? For you know that what matters matter and what matters don't. So there's no point changing the things that don't matter. In this lifetime, God is in sovereign control and you need to learn contentment. Because we don't live for this life, but for eternity, which Jesus brings to us and brings us to. That is why verses 17 to 24 is the key to the passage. He's talking about marriage, sex, virgins, uh, widows. He's not really. He's talking about God's sovereignty and our contentment. The presenting issues, that a man should not touch a woman, are just presenting issues. The real issue is this. And in that regard, it's just like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The presenting issue is speaking in tongues and, and prophesying and all the rest. But the real issue is love. So the real issue is the contentment. I don't care if you're single, I don't care if you're married. If you're married, you've got all kinds of worries and anxieties. If you're single, isn't that good? You've got greater opportunity to undividedly devote yourself to the Lord. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You are God's child. That's what matters. And you're living for him. That's what matters. So live in the light of eternity and be content with God's kindness to you, whatever it may be. And if there is opportunity to change and you want to, well, you can, because it doesn't matter. But you don't live your life for it, because you live for eternity and for the Lord. How about I lead in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection for us. We thank you that you call us to yourself from all kinds of different backgrounds, men and women, educated and uneducated. You call us in this country and in other countries. You've made us in different ethnicities. You've given us different families and different backgrounds. Father, we thank you that we can be confident in you that our lives are in your hands, that before we were born, before eternity, before the creation of this world, you chose us to be in Christ and have called us out that we might live for him and be presented to him pure and blameless and spotless on the last day. We thank you, Father, for the privileges of the families that you gave to us and that you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for those responsibilities that we who are married have. We thank you, Father, for the opportunities of devotion to the Lord that we who are single have. We do pray for each other, Father, that in our loneliness of being widows, in our loneliness of being without a spouse, that you will fill us with such joy in loving and serving other people as to not experience it as loneliness, but experience it as your life for us. And we pray for those who are married and have little ones, Father, that you would give us strength and energy and holiness and righteousness to raise them up in your fear and nurture and to continue to be able to take time to pray and to read your word and to be devoted to serving other people in the midst of the busyness of raising family. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us, each one, to be holy in mind and body,
living with joy in serving you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.